This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. With an election on the horizon, the coalition government delivered a budget this week with one thing in mind, re-election. Just a matter of weeks, the Australian people will go to the polls. They will face a clear choice. This is a responsible budget with temporary targeted measures. Money and big infrastructure projects flooding into key battleground seats. They may as well be stapling cash to how to vote in May. What a cynical political government this is. How do we keep track of what is being spent and where? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisha about following the dollars in an election budget. It's Friday, the 1st of April. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Lenore, in terms of pre-election budgets, how does this one stack up? Uh, Well, Gabs, pre-election budgets always spray cash around or fistfuls of dollars or whatever you want to call them, and this one was no exception, except that it was exceptional, I think, in the amount of money it spent on blatantly discretionary programs that uh, the government can announce during the election campaign. I said on budget night that it felt a bit like a whole lot of press releases that we're going to see during the campaign all kind of stapled together to make a big book. (laughs) And that wasn't entirely an exaggeration. It really did. And it has infuriated me for a long, long time that both sides of politics just keep doing this, blatantly politicised spending announcements, clearly benefiting marginal seats that they're targeting without clear criteria or guidelines. And then, you know, as night follows day during the term of parliament, whichever side wins, there are audit reports or investigations and a whole lot of outrage, which then get forgotten about. And then they just keep doing it all over again. And I guess this budget has done it with kind of small ticket funding programs and very, very big ticket funding programs. It's kind of like top to bottom discretionary spending, really. Before we get to the big ticket items, what were some of the smaller programs that were included in the budget that might have got lost amongst the headlines? Well, there was a there was a bunch of them. You always know that an election is coming when federal governments start spending money on CCTVs. <laughs> um, that that started out in 2016 uh, with something called the Safer Seats sorry, Safer Streets <laughs> program. I, that was only a Freudian slip, right? Safer seats, safer streets. It had $50 million to start with. It was doled out across the not particularly mean streets of electorates across Australia, always marginal or often marginal. Pretty soon it was subject to the ubiquitous scathing audit report, which found the department had often made generous, can you see my air quotes there, generous assumptions about the quality of the proposals, including whether they were actually actually located in crime hotspots at all and that there hadn't been any competitive process, that it was a closed non-competitive process designed only to assess the already promised projects from the election campaign. Okay, there's another word for that. It has to do with pig meat. Anyway, the program continued on and in February this year there was another scathing audit report into the same program that's been slightly renamed since then 
And then undeterred in this budget, the government allocated even more money to the Safer Communities Fund round six, another $50 million on top of $184 million already spent for CCTV and safety programs. Since it started, it's been expanded out to include safety for religious schools, you know, after the Christchurch massacre, which, you know, might well be a good idea. But that's not the point. The point is that these programs continue to be used to be doled out in a non-transparent and therefore potentially politicised manner. And it doesn't matter how many times the audit office says it, they just keep doing it. And then the Safer Communities Fund should not be confused with the Stronger Communities Program. And that got $30 million for another, for round eight or something of other small grants. So, you know, that's at the small end of the spectrum of discretionary grants, and they will all flow out in press releases for the whole campaign. And then there's, you know, there's much bigger projects as well that you could argue are similar in design. You feel like the word communities is a bit of a flashing red light in these funds, don't you? There's <laughs> the safer communities, there's the stronger communities, there's the strong and resilient communities grants, <laughs> there's the community <laughs> development grants program. But they keep doing it. Does that mean that it works? Well, I mean, we don't know if it works, actually. You have to think they obviously think that it works, but it's very hard to know exactly what works and what doesn't in an election campaign, isn't it? It's just a matter that has not had enough research and it's just extremely difficult to unpick uh, whether it works or not. But, I mean, the main reason is not that people think, you know, we got a swimming pool or we got some sports facilities or whatever it may be, we got some CCTV cameras. It's just like an opportunity for the local yeah. member to get up there and out there in the local media, be present, get name recognition Get some media, get some publicity, and look good. Good and, vibes. Yeah, it's good vibes. Yeah. It's not a kind of. There's not a direct relationship between the mm. sports facilities and the vote. I don't think. You'd have to think that there would be diminishing returns as voters get more cynical about these sorts of things, and that they are getting reported on more. And I've seen the nine newspapers have been doing some really great data work, tracking promises by both parties leading into the election. We're doing a big tracking project as well that will be rolled out during the election. And I do think it's really important that all the suckers in safe seats who aren't getting swimming pools and change sheds and car parks and whatever else mm. know in real time that they're not. The programs are sort of based on the assumption that they can be rolled out in local media in the seats that are benefiting without everybody else knowing that they're not benefiting until, you know, the middle of the term and then it's kind of too late for that part of it to have an impact. Yeah, that's true in one sense, but people are, have become so used to it that they're just entirely yeah. unsurprised by, you know, how outrageous this is. The spending's all going out without being properly evaluated and uh, the women, the politicians, they're like, well... That's that's, that's what, what happens, they do. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so it is really hard. I think it's really hard for this issue to get traction because uh, just because of that ever deepening cynicism about yeah. about the way that politics works. And to be clear, the real objection here is not that this spending might not be welcome or that it's always misplaced. You know, I'm sure a lot of those places need car parks or chain sheds or whatever. The objection is, firstly, why is the federal government funding CCTVs and car parks? 
anyway. It's not their job. That's a state and local government job. It's only really in order to get the glory in an election context. And secondly, as we've discussed, the absence of a transparent process and transparent criteria to judge the need against needs in other places on the basis of the actual thing that's Mm. being provided. Like what is the point of us spending money on a body like Infrastructure Australia if the government's going to come in and just ignore their recommendations? If we ignore them the whole time. Speaking of Infrastructure Australia, we have seen lots of big projects announced, as you both alluded to. What are some of the main projects that were announced, Lenore? Well, I think our reporter Josh Butler did a very good job on budget night analysing the infrastructure spending, and that's really big. The National Party leader, Barnaby Joyce, he figures may have extracted something like $21 billion, with a B, dollars in infrastructure and development spending Mm -hmm. in exchange for that when he did that deal with Scott Morrison to back the Liberals' net zero emissions plan. The budget had buckets of money on infrastructure for inland rail and freight and the water grid and regional accelerator programs and industrial hubs, all of which seem to be in broadly in states or areas of states where the coalition has marginal seats. The figures quoted by Joyce for each region also, according to Josh's calculations, leave about $550 million outstanding, which Joyce actually said out and about, oh, that will be further announcements to be made in due course. So, They're not even really trying to hide that this is all going to come out in the election campaign. I saw the Sydney Morning Herald this morning also tried to add up all of the discretionary spending, infrastructure, energy and all the little programs as well, and they came up with $13.8 billion set aside and ready to be announced in the campaign in sort of discretionary projects that are in the budget. So it's really big money. And of the infrastructure programs that have been announced, do we know whether they have been properly assessed? Yeah, so a lot of these infrastructure projects were sort of pre-announced before the budget and our political correspondent Sarah Martin did some analysis and found that just 15% of them had been endorsed as priorities by Infrastructure Australia which, as Mike just said, is supposed to be the overarching body that gives it advice on these things. So you'd have to say possibly no. On Thursday morning, our Queensland correspondent Ben Smee was reporting that um, Barnaby Joyce had dissolved, as appropriate word in the, talking about water, had <laughs> dissolved the body that is supposed to look at water spending through its independent experts at the same time as, as the coalition is announcing huge alleged spending on dams, which, as we've also previously reported, have not a business case, have not, do, not, do not have environmental approvals, or the, most of these in Queensland. It's not even that they're not recommended by the independent experts, it's that they haven't even seen them. It's run its course, according to Joyce, the body that's meant to that's meant to assess water. <laughs> yeah, how many so water puns can we it's get? Like, into? <laughs> um, oh yeah, sorry. I didn't, didn't mean to add that one. It seems really unlikely that any of these dams will be built, or most of them. It's just an announcement. So it's really just all about the we can put this dollar figure on it, we can say we want the dams, we can blame the state government or environmental groups or whatever for the fact that they don't ever appear, but it's just all about the announcement and and the election cycle. Well, I mean, wasn't the coalition sort of saying they think that dams might be the new Adani in Queensland, i.e. a sort of political issue that can ostensibly pit environmentalists against local people. I thought it was really interesting that one of the expert members of that body that Barnaby Joyce has now 
dissolved, had expressed concern about the process in a letter to other members saying that the funding announcements to build dams had been made for brazenly political purposes and without the advisory body having been given any opportunity to consider them. I mean, you can't really get clearer than that. We know that cynicism is really destructive to democracy. So how do we report on this without feeding into that cynicism? I think we have to try and create the transparency that political parties don't want to be there in order to get to a point where politicians take the criticism seriously. Mm. I mean, at the moment, obviously, they're making the cost-benefit analysis that any criticism they might get is worth it because these projects do sort of work in electoral terms. It must be said the Labor Party is making a bunch of discretionary spending promises around the country in the lead-up to the election as well and will no doubt do it during the election campaign. So at the end of the day, as I think we've said before on this podcast, I think this will continue until there is an ICAC-style body at a federal level that has some teeth. We know that those kinds of bodies at a state level have given state uh, parliaments pause for thought about these things. It hasn't stopped it entirely, but it means that there is some penalty or some reason to not do it other than an audit report that you can kind of sweep under the carpet. Mm. The budget staff allocation for the government's proposed Commonwealth Integrity Commission in this budget was zero because Labor's refusing to support it because they say it's so weak that it won't do anything. Labor is promising a tougher version. We'll see. I don't know if we do ever get a federal ICAC. I guess it will definitely be a triumph of hope over experience. Even then, the uh, in New South Wales, it's had its own grants scandal through its almost identically named Safer Communities Fund, mm. which spread money in exactly the same way and uh, we've reported on, as the Auditor General has reported on, yes. there was no clear basis for more than half of its grants, but nevertheless, you know, on it goes. Sure, but when, there's, when it gets to a certain point, there is a body to refer it to. If it's so egregious, yeah. So in the absence of a federal body that monitors this kind of targeted funding and as the election campaign ramps up, how are we going to track this kind of spending? Well, yes, yeah, Nick Evershed, our data editor, and his team are working on it. And what we're trying to do is look at this discretionary spending, which we've sort of tried to define across the parties and across the electorates and kind of track where the money is going mm. in real time or as in close to real time as we can so that people can see. It will give us um, an insight into the seats that the parties are most concerned about because that's where a lot of the money will be pouring in. And as I said before, it'll give voters across Australia a chance to look at where discretionary spending is going and, more importantly, where it isn't going. Next, Oscars and Omicron. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Mike, what could you not get out of your head this week? My story is about COVID, which has not been right at the top of the headlines recently. And it's a story out of the UK, which analyses the three myths of Omicron. Uh, it's called, Why is the UK seeing near record COVID cases? And because we still believe the three big myths about Omicron. And the three myths are that it's become endemic, that is, exists, but it's stable, essentially. The second one is that it's becoming milder over time, that each new variant is inevitably going to be milder. 
And the third one is that the vaccination program is done and we're, we've pretty much done everything we can on vaccinations. Point of the story is that while there's this great wish to feel like things are going back to normal and they are in the sense that restrictions have been lifted in the UK just as they have been here, actually the figures entirely belie that and all anecdotal evidence would suggest that Almost everyone has COVID or has had it or knows someone very close to them who has it. Uh, I know in my circle they do. And, yeah, I just keep thinking back to the, to the stories at the, right at the start of the year when there were very, some very optimistic opinion pieces written saying this is the year that the pandemic will end and it's, it's essentially all it's going to be all over soon. And it feels like that is very much not the case. Uh, mm. that it's just in a different phase where the effects are more on workplaces and schools because people are sick for a few days or up to a week rather than people dying, although we are still seeing pretty high mm. death rate. But yeah, for all reasons, it is very much not over. Lenore, do you have anything more cheery than that? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, I don't. The thing I can't get out of my head is the slap, the Oscars mm. slap, and I feel a little inadequate because I don't have a hot take. I don't have any enormous insight. It was just dreadful, appalling behaviour. I don't really have anything more to say than that, but I truly can't get it out of my head how did the ceremony just go on like someone hadn't just been assaulted? And then I read that the Academy had asked Will Smith to leave and he refused, but that just raises a thousand more questions for me. I just find the whole thing quite bewildering and it keeps replaying in my head. So that's the thing I can't get out of my head. Okay, well, um, thank you both for joining us today <laughs> and we'll go for joy next week. We'll try hard. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Gabs. That's it for today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. The executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday and we'll see you then. <laughs>